Hello everyone and welcome back to the History Hour. I'm your host and guide Blaine. So today we're going to be starting our second episode in our Bates-Wilson series. So in 1949, Bates-Wilson became the General Superintendent over Arches National Monument and Natural Bridges National Monument. But there was this land in between, as he would have called it. And the vast landscape of the land in between first sparked his curiosity, and then it gained his attention. And to quote Bates Wilson on the matter, he said, I found myself looking down on the most fantastic color jumbled of natural wonders I had ever seen. There were arches, spires, rugged canyons, crevasses, and fens, all stitched together with little green grovins. A large number of still intact prehistoric Indian ruins were visible as I looked down upon the rainbow-hued land. To a Park Service official, it was a proverbial pot of gold. And now we're going to hear the history of Bates Wilson, the father of Canyonlands, from the ones who knew him best, his friends and his family. I'm Bates Wilson, and I'm very proud to have been the first superintendent of Canyonlands. It's a great privilege. These can side canyons that run back into the White Rim are really fantastic. You get weird shapes, pinnacles, spires, even uh, balanced rocks that are unbelievable. Why they stay there, we don't know. Why they stay up, and they do. <laughs> See the headdress on that guy standing out in front? Arms folded like this. <laughs> Uh, you can see if you want to walk from here to there, it's sort of the old saying, you can't get there from here. There are just too many canyons in between you. You have to go around. Well, and, and take the lay of the land the way it is. But it's a big, big country. And it is difficult. It's rough. It's rugged. And yet, it's very, very delicate. Very delicate. When I flew over it with Pute stocks, I had never really seen anything like it. I mean, it was just unique as it could be. And uh, I'd only been here in Moab for a week. I thought that arches and natural bridges were great. But this, the immensity of it, the colorful, rock formations, the geology, the archaeology, everything just fitted in to make a super-duper national park. I mean, one that would qualify right down the line, scenically, scientifically, and uh, aesthetically, let's say. And it is a natural place, and I'd love to see it stay that way. We thought that, that canyon lands, because there are many, many canyons, would be an appropriate name for it. Uh, my name is Caroline Wilson, and I was the youngest daughter 
the youngest child and the second daughter of Bates and Edie Wilson. We moved to Arches National Monument when I was a year and a half in 1949. Uh, my name is Julia Wilson Sean Sucker, and my father is Bates Wilson, and I grew up uh, at Arches and went to school in Moab, Utah. Well, I'm Alan Wilson, a nickname of Tug from Moab time frame. Um, Bates is my father. I'm 86 years old. I moved to Moab in 1949 and spent 10 years there and then off to college and back many, many times. There was so much controversy when it came to Canyonlands, which maybe you're going to talk about in a few minutes, but in the way he envisioned Canyonlands should be developed and um, the way others in Moab wanted it to be developed. It, it, there was, of course, that conflict because some people wanted, <clears throat> many people, I'll say, trying to be diplomatic here, wanted much more develop than de development than Bates wanted. So right. there was a little bit of, of difficulty there. I can't find any evidence of any park employee, superintendent, management, or other, who ever got designated or created a national park out of lands for which they were not responsible. Bates, you know, got arches expanded from a monument to a park, and there's a lot of histories of those. The same thing in Capitol Reef, which he worked on, uh, and many, many monuments have become parks in that way. But in terms of Canyonlands, I cannot find any evidence of any employee who got land designated or credited with creating a park out of public lands for which they had no responsibility. Wow. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, speaking of controversy, um, tell us a little bit about the Canyonlands controversy kind of at the beginning, you know, because it kind of looked like, you know, the BLM wanted the land to continue to look for other resources and mining. And then you've got folks like your father, you know, who was doing the groundwork, you know, and pushing it to become a national park. Yeah, I think there's, there's always um, in something redesignating land use very controversial. You had probably three interests there all in conflict with each other. One is the stock people, the cattle stockmen, um, who of course wouldn't want any change because they were running their stock, uh, grazing up for peanuts on public land. You had the uranium mining interests who wanted the land for um, producing uranium um, and perhaps other minerals eventually, vanadium, radium, and so forth. And you also had the water resources people who wanted to build dams. So you had those three main sort of folks, in my mind, who, who all um, were opposed in one way or another to the designation as a national park, um, or a national monument for that matter, uh, largely because it then kind of becomes off limits to them. And um, Dad was pretty good as a horse trader and discussions and whatever, um, and he got a lot of help from certain people, Stuart Udow, um, gentleman from Colorado in the final Senate hearings, is the one who kind of came up with a compromise to make Canyonlands a national park. 
Um, and then you had the tourist industry, which was minor at that time compared today. Um, people in Moab were not visitation tourist oriented at all. They were largely, as I recall, opposed to the park idea, except for perhaps a couple of motel owners. But they were also making money in other ways, from the movie industry, from the uranium mining, um, the people who would come to do explorations and that sort of thing. So there was not an enormous enthusiasm for a park within the town. Hmm. But that didn't deter him. What on the ground? What were some of the uh, what was some of the groundwork that he was doing to make it into? Well, I think probably um, initially the park idea was not necessarily forefront of his mind or maybe even in his mind. Um, it, it was the beauty of the land and the, some of the Native American um, sites that we came across. Um, the explorations that we did, first with a horseback trip funded by his cousin Robert um, or Bob Deckert, who was a very famous Philadelphia lawyer. He served in the Eisenhower administration as legal counsel for the Department of Army. Um, Robert Eckert had been everywhere in the world and ferocious learner and reader knew almost everything about anything you ever want to know. And he came and funded a horse track trip that we did with Ross Musselman as an outfitter in March of 1950. And prior to that, Ray and Virginia Garner had arrived with a letter from the Secretary of Interior in April of 40 or June of 49, right after we moved there. And the letter said to my father, um, do a, basically do what these people need to want to. They were rock climbers and um, travel photographers, filmmakers. So they did a trip with his maintenance man, Merle, and that gave Dad some insight as to the area. Then we did the horseback trip, which I saw Jeep tracks, which were probably Merle's in Fall Creek. And that gave me um, the idea to do our Boy Scout annual summer camp out for the speakers, summer camp, in the Needles versus at Warner Lake. And because we were a non-Mormon troop, we were out let out of school May 15th, generally, so kids could work the fields and orchards. Us non-LDS scouts were free to go to the Needles. We went there before it got hot and before the Noceans arrived. And we did those trips four summers, and those, I think, in many ways gave my father two weeks, in some cases, of hands-on hiking and exploring um, arches, canyons, ruins, rock art, etc., that he might not have ever have seen. And, and that, along with the 1957 National Geographic trip um, with photographer and author Robert Moore, Bob Moore, um, which was a two-week adventure, gave him then another uh, evidence, largely by jeep and horse, um, more extensive in some sense, or more complete, as to what was in particular in Salt Creek, Davis Canyon, and Horse Canyon, and um, Lavender Canyon. Um, those items before 1960, I have a feeling set in his mind that the land between arches and bridges 
was a part character, part caliber. It was largely untouched. The uranium mining had not gotten very much into it yet. There was a small drift mine in Upper Salt Creek, not too far from uh, the Upper Jump, but that was about it within the valleys of What's the Needles, which is the main area we explored. Um, so by 1957, um, he had gotten a pretty good idea of the overall value of what we call the needles. And at the same time, he started expanding his knowledge outside of that, um, but didn't explore it extensively until um, 1960 time frame. Well, in 1961, when Stuart Udell um, wanted to look at the area, he had just attended a conference in Arizona someplace about dams. He flew over the confluence. He was very unhappy about the Bureau of Reclamation's idea of building a dam at the confluence, and somehow contacted my father or whatever and arranged for a trip in 61, which Robert Moore, the geographic writer and photographer, came back to, and the article in 1962 issue of National Geographic called Cities of Stone is a combination of a 57 trip and a 61 trip. Not quite parsed equally, but most of the second part, the 61 and the 57 is in the first half. And, and that, those two combined trips, plus discussion with um, Udall, with Robert Moore, with his cousin Robert Deckard and a number of dads friends. He had kind of a wide range of friends in Santa Fe, the Park Service, um, Vermont, um, etc. Sort of set the bricks in cement for a park. That's my view. A lot of controversies there. Um, the road to uh, Spring Canyon, for example, is a dead end. People wanted that to go all the way around and, I don't know, they called it a gold and circle drive or something. He was totally opposed to that, but he had to uh, he had to acquiesce and at least build a spur down the Spring Canyon, and fortunately they ran out of money and stopped. Mm. Wow. Making that accessible to everybody. And, Bridges um, National Monument. Greatly improving the living situation for the staff, mm. which has turned out to probably be extremely smart because then you had Glen Canyon build Highway 95, which was largely for uranium originally, and the First it went broke through Comb Ridge in the northern part and then the main dugway in the southern part. Then you started having hordes of people come. So that was also an important development, all at the same time of doing arches, canyon lands, and bridges. Founding energy up to a point, but sometimes I'm sure, um, and I am, of course, by that time, I'm in the east working at IBM Research. I'm not, this is in the early 60s, I'm not involved with the family details, well, we did visit Moab once a year, roughly, for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but he was exhausted at times. On the other hand, sometimes when I would come out, we would take um, a Jeep and go to Needles for a week or a few days. Um, one time with um, my son, who was about maybe six, my wife, Maxine, we, we went to Beef Basin. We came down Bobby's Hole and across the Elephant Hill. We camped out a few days. Um, that would probably be about 1971. Mm. He took time to do that and, yeah. uh, and show us the sites and talk about the park, 
Spectrum. Yeah. It was a park at that point. So. What was the name and how it was found? Um, at the end of the 1957 National Geographic trip, one of the members on that trip was Harlan Beeman, who was the director of state aeronautics at the state of Utah. He flew a state airplane, an Apache twin engine, not much wing space, but very fast airplane. And, and he left that in Monticello at the air, little airstrip while on our two-week, approximately two-week trip. At the end of the trip, he offered to take any of the members, which there are about 10 of us, or thereabouts, some of them paid for the trip, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, on a flyover of where we had just been. And Dad and I naturally would be the last people to fly. And I'm sitting in the right-hand rear seat of this twin-engine Apache. This plane had to fly very fast because it had very little airlift from the wings. And we're flying over towards Chester because we've been in Chester to take a look at it. And I had an Argus C3 that I had purchased a few years before, and I was used to taking a lot of photos. I had a camera ready in case I saw something of interest. And um, I'm looking out the window on my right side, and I see something which I think is an arch, and I snap the photo. But the plane's moving so fast, and we didn't circle around, you can't really get get a good view of it or can't fully absorb it. But when I had the film developed, um, sure enough, there is a big, tall arch, narrow and thin, in a pin. And um, so that would have been probably with the film was developed in July or August of 57. And um, Dad uh, took a look at the, and had only one slide of it, because only could take one that's moving so fast. Um, and the number of his rangers with arches, by that time we had had more than Mission 66, more rangers that arches. They had Abby, his brother, for example, and a number of other people. And there was a guy down at Bridges. Um, and, a, and a few of them decided to go look for the arch based on this slide. Um, they never found it. In fact, they got completely lost. They ended up oh. entering Elephant Canyon from Chesler Park mm-hmm. and on their way back down the canyon, having not found the arch, they missed the little turnoff at what I call the ironing board flat irons. Those are slabs of flagstone in the bottom of Elephant Canyon that if you don't recognize them and then turn to your left and go up a, a draw, you're not going to get back to Chesler. They were all the way down to the road crossing um, Elephant Canyon. And um, then another six, seven, eight months goes by, and no one finds the arch. So I'm graduating from the University of Utah, and I'm actually graduating a little bit of a year late because I had pooping cough one year and I had to have an extra year to catch up a certain physics sequence. So I ended up in the U five years. But on the fourth year, I have everything all completed except one physics sequence. And that gave me a week's vacation. What that means is we're going to the needles in your Jeep. I own a new Jeep. Um, we're going to go look for things and so on. And one of our designations was to try to find this art that is in this photograph that I took on the flyover. 
he was always inviting people to join us. In this case, he invited a wool merchant from Chicago named John Levering. So the three of us in my little Jeep go down to the Needles over Elephant Hill Central, and we get into Chesler. I have a gorgeous photograph of um, a fire where they're making food at sundown with a great big rock cliff illuminated where the trail breaks out and goes down into Elephant Canyon. Next morning, we we skinny down a pinyon tree to get into a draw that leads us into Elephant Canyon. We walk up, which means walking south, Elephant Canyon, and I always like to get out of the bottom. And at some point, I've climbed out of the bottom to the left. That would be on the southeast side of the canyon. Climbed up around the butte, and lo and behold, in front of me is this gorgeous arch, which you've seen the photograph at the original first photograph on the ground, I think, of Druid Arch. I took that as I came around. I took quite a few slides, actually, and um, threw my rope down to John and Dad and helped them get out of Elephant Canyon at the head where they could see the arch. Hmm. And that, Dad took that photograph, one of my slides, and sent it to his cousin, Robert Deckert, who, as I said before, was a world traveler. And he, Dad asked him, what should, we, what should it be named? And his immediate response was, Druid from Stonehenge, of course. And I've been to Stonehenge, took my family there, and sure enough, you have these tall pillars with a lentil across, and it's an absolutely perfect name. Mm. That's awesome. The little stock tank on, on the way into Chesler, and at some point, um, oh, superintendent, I can't remember his name, but I well met him. Um, that with Dad's, one of Dad's first rangers at Canyonlands, he told the ranger, he said, close the road into Chester because there are too many Jeeves coming. And, and he said that Tug will be very angry. <laughs> so they closed the road, probably 65 or 67, so no one could drive in there anymore. Because there were too many people driving too many places in Chester. Yeah. Wow. When Dad closed the road, he needed to find a way for people to come in. Besides walking the old road in, which I actually still prefer in many ways, so he and a couple of rangers figured out a way to go from um, the end of the road, so to speak, um, up a little draw to the south of Chester through what's called the Joint Trail. And it's a, it's a wonderful hike. Um, I still take people the old road in. Uh, I know exactly where it is. I'm, I have no trouble with it. I took Bud Turner and um, Chris Gertz in and showed them that. Um, we found a, an old Indian fire, slab fire pit right near the stock tank that, um, that <clears throat> two stocks had built on the road in. Um, and it was a good idea to close it because it was a very, very bad uh, dugway you had to get through. I had to lower my windshield on my CJ 2A and 3B to get under it. Hmm. So it was a good idea to close it. Yeah. But the joint trail is fine. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a short little break here. And whenever we come back, we still have a lot to cover with the history of Bates Wilson. And we're also going to be hearing just some really good fond memories that Bates Wilson's friends and family had about him. So go get some water and keep that dial right here on KZMU. And we'll be back right after this. Thank you. 
Hey guys, welcome back. This is the History Hour. Just in case you are just now tuning in, uh, we are doing a very special short little series about Bates Wilson, the father of Canyonland. So this is episode two, and we are talking to the ones who knew him best, his friends and his family. And now we're going to welcome back Mr. Melvin Olson. Um, Mel, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Bates Wilson and kind of sort of who he was and his character and, um, yeah, and just some basic fond memories and some really good history about him. You know, he wore Levi's and a gray shirt and a, I don't know, felt hat, <laughs> but the gray shirt had park service on it, had the park ranger, but that's just how he was it, most of the time. When he was at work, a lot of times he was very rarely in a uniform. And uh, he just was out. I was talking, when I was out there a couple of years ago, I was talking to an old uh, maintenance guy that worked for Bates uh, after I left. And we just got to talking. We didn't know each other. And, and we got talking about Bates. And he said, he said, it was incredible. He said, I screwed up one day so bad in, my, in the park uh, loader that we had. I, I really screwed up. And I just knew I was going to get hell and maybe even get fired for it. And it was just one of those mistakes that, I, you know, it was just, a, it was just an accident. Mm -hmm. And he said, the first thing that I, the first person that I saw come out, out to me <laughs> was the superintendent. And he said, <laughs> when I saw him coming, I just knew I was going to be fired. And he said, it wasn't that way. He said, yeah. it, it worked out so good. The way he talked to me mm -hmm. made me feel comfortable. And, you know, and he realized that I was doing my job and it was just one of those things. And he says, that's just the way he was. It didn't matter whether you were uh, the secretary of interior or the low, lowest guy on the totem pole. He treated you the same way. And I think that's why the people in Washington, like Udall and, and that group of people that used to go on some of these trips, they were just so comfortable with him no matter what. And he, he just, it, it was just an instant bond. Mm. Uh the, the film, the film, of course, was was filmed by Charles Eckert, and uh, the Sierra Club was involved in it, and also the National Parks Foundation Conservation Organization, and that was Frank Maslin. Uh, but it was it was he made a trip there in in 1958. He took Udall, and the, if you have a can get a copy of the May 1962 National Geographic, that that. That trip is pictured in there uh, for about 11 pages, hmm. and it's the same exact trip that we took in 1962. Hmm. Only on that trip, he had some other important people with him. He was really trying to push this idea of, of be, it becoming a national park. Hmm. Uh, I've got copies of that, and uh, his son Tug, and like two other, I think there are two or three other explorer scouts that were friends of Tug Wilson, they went on that trip with him. And A.C. Ecker, the guy that had the stock, the uh, the horses and the, the pack animals, and, and Art Ecker in Green River, Art was the father, A.C. was the son, they they provided the horses for that, that trip as well. Hmm. And uh, then in 62, uh, he, he was able to, to finagle uh, the Park Service and the Interior Department, and Udall loved him, I believe, and and but he had to come up with the funding and that's where frank maslin i believe came in uh he had the he had the resources to to fund this movie mm -hmm. and then they picked up charles eckert out of i think new york i don't know where eckert is from actually but he uh i think he's from new york mm -hmm. and the whole idea was is to 
to film this whole area like they, they went through in 58 and take it back to Congress and show them what we what they had. And and they were impressed, and he became known as Mr. Canyonlands and got to know a lot of the, the important people in Washington, and there was a lot of support. The problem, one of the problems with the idea of, of, of it being a national park was the governor of Utah at the time was not that much in favor of, of, of the whole area because Bates wanted 350,000 acres roughly. Mm-hmm. He ended up with 254,000. And I remember at one meeting, I think we were on a trip with not the governor of Utah, but maybe the, the uh, whoever, the lieutenant governor. And he made, the, <laughs> he made a comment about well, you know, I think you might get twelve or ten thousand acres out of this, and that just floored Bates. I know because he tried so hard. He wanted the three hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, uh, he didn't get the three hundred fifty thousand, but he got a lot of it anyway. The the film probably convinced people in Washington to 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 vote for it as a national park mm-hmm. to be included in the national park system. All I did after that was I just got a copy of the sixteen millimeter film and I used to show it at the program evening programs uh, at Arches uh, two or three times a week and then when I transferred to Yellowstone uh, I borrowed the film to show those people because not too many people knew that much about Canyonlands and so I started showing it around and it was a 16 millimeter and then when I went to Assateague they didn't know anything about Canyonlands or that area But, but of course it had already been it was already a national park then but uh, I just sort of got kind of interested in maybe showing it to the Easterners that were in the area, clubs, Kiwanis, that sort of thing. And there was a tour guide on the eastern shore of Virginia that that was started taking trips to Utah. So I, I met her and told her about Canyonlands. So I, I would present that. I, I'd give a presentation to that to the groups before they went out there. And that's kind of what got me started with this film. But then all of a sudden, it it became so used and old that uh, it was no longer loaned out. And so mm-hmm. I one day, just out of the whim, I called the interpreter at uh, Canyonlands, the chief of interpretation, and I asked him. I said, "Look, I said, can you loan that film out anymore?" And he says, "Well, it's got a." This guy was new there, so he didn't know that much about it. He said, I, well, it's got a tag on it that says, historic, do not use. And I said, well, I work right next to NASA and uh, Wallops Island, Virginia. And I said, they have a heck of an audiovisual lab there. And I've talked to him about it. And he, he, I told him, I said, they can convert that to 8-track VHS if you'll let me borrow it. Because <laughs> so, yeah. I'd still like to show it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he let me take it. And he sent it to me. And... I took it over to NASA, and, and they did. They converted it into the uh, 8-track, and uh, I sent them copies of it. And that's what I was going to tell you. They've still got a copy of that 8-track. Mm-hmm. To make a long story short, then I had it converted into uh, a DVD, and I just sent them a copy a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I uh, I would I would love to actually see that someday. Um, so definitely going to have to uh, look into that. Thank you so much, Mel, uh, for your time. And uh, now we're going to go over to Mr. Rusty Davidson and welcome him back to the History Hour here. And uh, Rusty's got some really good memories of kind of what was going on in the area and what Bates Wilson was doing uh, during uh, the development of Canyonlands National Park. I, I just remembered him shuttling in people. Uh, I don't know, you know, I, I imagine it originated on the phone or by letters and so forth to uh, 
to uh, some of the, uh, probably the Department of Interior or whoever. Uh, I was never involved in that, but we all knew that it was going on because he would bring anybody that, that was interested or that had any clout and take them down into, into Canyonlands and show them the grandeur of, of that area. Uh, that's probably one of the remotest areas in, uh, in all of the United States. And it, it's just amazing, Chester Park and Angel Arch and some of those places down in there. And uh, I, I just know that it, it, if it hadn't have been for him uh, introducing those people and, and uh, spending time with them down there, and his camp cooking was just absolutely amazing. And uh, he would also furnish a, a bit of whiskey at times too to, to help uh, to help the cause. You know, I I can't think about it other than he he was just a truly a gentle soul. I, I never saw him upset. Uh, I remember when he was teaching us how to repel, so forth. Just one of the true gentlemen. Uh, never never seemed to get overly excited. Uh, was just very passionate in, in what he did. And uh, uh, I remember one time, uh, one of my best friends was a fellow named Gary Zaransky, and I were raised there in Moab together. Uh, his guardian, a fellow taking care of him, uh, and a couple of partners got a, a chance to uh, start a, a gravel uh, recovery area or, you know, uh, right by the river bridge and Bates saw that going on and just went crazy because it was right within the you know uh, you could see it from the road and so forth and got that shut down uh, because it, it just wasn't a very good environmental type of thing mm-hmm. and uh, my, my my friend's guardian her, did not get very happy over that but at the same time it just showed that Bates was really looking out for the you know the well-being of that whole area travel operation that I was talking about wasn't within the Arches uh, uh, National Monument or anything, but at the same time, it affected the, the whole area and, and probably wasn't a good thing in that particular location. So uh, that's what upset him so, and he got it shut down and, frankly, had the clout to uh, shut it down because somebody had uh, uh, most likely issued the permits and so forth for it. But. Uh, that's, a, that's the kind of guy he was. Yeah, he was just a great guy all around. Just a, just a really good man and, and uh, you know, uh, did a great job for that whole area because of tourism. You know, after the, the uh, decline of the uranium boom, tourism basically has made that, uh, made that town. Uh, and, and there's a lot of controversy over that, obviously, because of the fact that, for the most part, the... Uh, uh, the mines and the uranium uh, mill and so forth paid a lot better than the uh, tourist industry as far as the uh, employees go. <clears throat> At the same time, it, it brought a lot of problems with it. Uh, uh, when I was uh, graduated from high school, I actually worked at the at the uranium mill out there making uh, little rocks out of big ones on the Grizzly. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that for a summer. But it also brought a lot of problems with it, not for me personally, but a lot of the miners uh, uh, developed uh, all kind of problem, cancer problems and so forth because mm-hmm. of working around that uh, that high 
radioactive content of a lot of those mines. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. Uh, and I feel like that's a whole history episode in and of itself right there. <laughs> well, thanks, Rusty, for all that information. Uh, I know we all greatly appreciate it. Uh, we're going to go now to Miss Ann Wilson. And uh, I just want Ann to go ahead and introduce herself, and uh, we'll jump right on into some, uh, some really nice memories and history of Bates Wilson. My name is Ann Wilson. I'm a resident of Professor Valley, Utah, and Bates was technically my stepfather, and for all intents and purposes, my father. You know, he was just one of the most generous souls I've, you know, I've ever known. He was, we grew up with him, my sister Lynn and I, um, with he and my mom in Professor Valley, so it was after his time with the Park Service, and so it was a, it was a different, just a different um, experience than, say, Hug and Julie and Cindy had. Um, we were all on the ranch and doing, and doing the work, and our we had forays into Canyonlands, into the Needles District, into the maze. There was definitely a lot of talk and a lot of lore about, you know, about the early days before Canyonlands National Park was established. Um, and a lot of talk and experience about the relationships that were formed during those years. And in my growing up, our house was just filled with people coming and going and mm. we didn't have a telephone and so people would just show up and they were people that either dad knew or my mom knew or what became even more common was you know I'm a friend of so-and-so and they told me I should stop by and see their friend Bates Wilson and they would just drive up and they would stay they would have dinner and become family friends and return um, it was just a it was a very welcoming and generous environment to grow up in mm-hmm. and that yeah. was Bates that was also my mom Robin in terms of being his child I think by that time in his life, he just didn't really get angry about things. He just kind of set you straight if there was an issue and you listened. Yeah. Um, and it was a very, it was a very calming uh, relationship with a lot of acceptance that I think was incredibly valuable to, you know, my experience being a young person. Yeah. Um, definitely a love of landscape, a love of Professor Valley, um, a love of being outdoors. And while he'd grown up on a ranch in New Mexico, it was it was different than being on a farm and being a farmer. And there was a lot of um, there's a big learning curve there. And, of course, my parents became fast friends with the ranching families along the river. And there were always 
shenanigans on people's birthdays and you know surprises and jokes and and things like that it definitely feels like a different time than 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 today oh absolutely it really was only a decade and yet it seemed it seemed a lot longer than that um well retirement was the purchase of professor valley ranch um with my mom and it was you know i would say it was a decade of farming and family i think is how i would put it there were there was he was still involved in things in Moab in terms of um, being involved when, and I do not have the steel trap mind that Tug has, but when they were talking about a nuclear site, I think in Green River or somewhere nearby, he was involved in that. But it, it was definitely day-to-day farming I mean we had someone who lived on the ranch but you a farmer and a rancher's life is is quite tied to the land in specific ways with chores that are done daily and in the morning and in the evening and um, you don't get away really unless you have someone there to take over while you're gone Um, so we spent a lot of time a lot of time there a lot of time people coming to us you know, friends coming to us and having dinners and parties. We would travel um, back east on alternate Christmases to my grandparents' place, on my, my maternal grandparents' place in the Adirondacks. And we had good family friends who we shared Thanksgivings with um, in Denver. But I think he was, you know, home more than he was in those early days when he was out scouting what is now Canyonlands and gone a fair amount of the time. I mean, we would we would drive up Professor Creek to go on picnics, which is it's kind of mind-boggling now. But that was the that was you know the fun thing to do in the in the mm-hmm. summertime when families would come or friends would come you'd pack up the chuck wagon in the back of the red jeep and drive not all that far maybe a mile up from the dam and there was a spot with a couple of big cottonwood trees and a nice sandy place where you could park and build a campfire and have a dutch oven dinner Mm -hmm. you know it was a it was a different variation on a camping trip and one that you could do you know after you'd change the sprinklers and then drive home later afterwards yeah that's one thing that i feel like that uh, a lot of people when you ask them hey what's your favorite place out here you know they're either going to say oh the arches or oh i love going down to the needles and stuff like that and and i really mm-hmm. feel like what really speaks speaks about Bates Wilson is that he just loved wherever he was if it was out here (laughs) because there are photos Mm -hmm. of him you know even out in the yellow cat flats and um, up in the island in the sky and uh, the maze and uh, the needles and um, Professor Creek and all these places you know he just loved to be here he loved to be in this region you know Mm -hmm. it felt like that this was the place yes it, it was definitely his region to the point where, you know, my sister and I both remark and 
Cindy and I have had the same conversation that we didn't spend much time in the LaSalle's because he had such a love for the desert. Like he didn't, our, we didn't grow up going into the LaSalle's the same way that other Moab families did, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because they're just not that far away. I think he was just occupied elsewhere. And the other thing that resonated with me when you're talking about, you know, him just being happy being here, he had a real gift for not, like he was present. Mm. He was present with who was in front of him. He was present with where he was. Right. It wasn't, you know, where do I need to be in 15 minutes or how long do I have for this person? He just, and my mom had the same gift. Like you, you would feel like you were the focus and being right there with them. And that time, like that was the only thing there wasn't, there wasn't worry about what was coming next or just a real gift for being in the, in the here and now. Yeah. Is that we didn't know. Um, We, my sister and I weren't aware that he'd had a heart attack a year before. Hmm. The big heart attack that killed him. Um, We knew something was different. Um, We knew that um, the last camping trip into Canyonlands, um, and I don't know if that would have been in the fall. It was probably in the late fall of 81 I think um, we knew you know it, it didn't like something was different about it when when they came home we knew it had been cold mm-hmm. um, and I think there was a feeling among all the people who were there that like oh something is something is different um, and I can't remember if they got stuck or what happened but it wasn't it wasn't the same as they usually were, and it was after that. Like, he probably had a minor heart attack on that trip. Right. And it was after that that um, he and my mom went to Salt Lake on a trip, and they they saw some heart specialists, but we didn't know until after he had died. Um, the only thing, really, that we knew was that he stopped smoking and, you know, diet changed a little bit. And I would say, you know, in in reflection, um, I could sense that there was, um, you know, as I as I reflected back after he had passed, it was like, oh yes, things were different. There was, it wasn't that there was more tenderness or more appreciation, but I think um, I think my parents knew time was borrowed at that point um and they were choosing to make the most of the time and they chose you know they chose not to share that with us um um, so i think there were like in as a as a 14 year old it was like something was different but not so much that as a 14 year old you spend a ton of time thinking about it um and worrying about it uh, but it was definitely, um, it was definitely a shock, and it was definitely that thing that, for me as a kid, was my greatest fear. And then it happened. And I think that that's something that we can, you know, ultimately speak on of Bates Wilson is that he uh, definitely left that legacy for sure, um, and it is still 
uh, resonating um, with all of us, um, even decades later, you know. Um, uh, definitely, he was a man of charisma and a man of vision. Yes, he was. A man of passion, yeah. and um, he had a very unique way of doing things and getting things done. You know, he had a lot of admirable qualities about himself as a man and as a general superintendent of these national parks and as the father of yeah. Canyonlands, you know, um, mm -hmm. quite the inspiration. And um, it's definitely been uh, truly an honor uh, to uh, speak to all of you about this. Thank you. You know, I think that beyond his his love of of landscape and place, I think that something of that would be of tremendous value is if we could emulate his way of approaching each other as people first. With we're so divided now. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to make any progress until we can figure out how to have those hard conversations again and how to see each other as people first before whatever the belief or the position is. Right, absolutely. Um, I remember, you know, Heidi Red has talked to me several times about how, you know, it was really hard when the park was being created and they had to give up part of Dugout Ranch. Mm -hmm. And, but she said the, the way that the conversations went and that, like, just the, it was like humanity was first, like the humanity and the other person. And she said, you know, it, it wound up being okay because of how they spoke with them, because of how they were included, and because of the nature of the conversation. And I just, he has such a gift that way. And granted, I, I don't think things were as, as divisive now, um, as divisive as they are now. Yeah. But he just had such a gift of, like, seeing people as people first. Yeah, and, you know, I think that is just one of the biggest things uh, when we're speaking about Bates Wilson is he was a people person, and he was a person who loved and cared about people, and uh, he wanted this land to be protected for the people, and that way folks could just enjoy these places that he loved as well, and he wants people to be able to see this land the way that he saw it. And that's kind of one of the uh, wonderful things about Bates Wilson is that same passion is still around till this very day. Um, and as for me, um, I am a backcountry guide out here. Um, I go into Canyonlands and into the arches. And every single time I start talking about Bates Wilson and sharing these stories with my guests in the back country and we get out to that really nice quiet solitude place and we're overlooking you know these big beautiful vast deep canyons or you know we get into the back country of arches and it's just so silent and they're just seeing this beautiful landscape they their eyes just start to be open you know as soon as it's just something about Bates Wilson you know when you're sharing this information with them they can feel the passion that he had for this area and this region just through the stories. And one of those stories that everybody just gets a huge kick out of 
um, is very well written by Jen Jackson Quintano and Blow Sand in His Soul. So I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from this book, um, which is uh, one of my personal favorite stories. And it says, it is late October 1961 and Bates is leading a group of federal employees to suss out the scenic significance of the little explored lands to the west of the Green River, an area collectively known as the Maze. They spend a cold night with snow on the ground at French Springs, making use of an old line cabin and corn crib as sleeping quarters. On Halloween day, they push across the North Point towards its edge. Here, views spread across the compass. From the orange cliffs to the green river bottoms, red rock towers in the foreground and snow-capped peats in, in the background, encompassing the white rim, the needles, and more. The whole of the Canyonlands erosion basin is visible from the viewpoint aptly, known as Panorama. Jim Beam orbits the campfires, the men discuss the scenery and its future, with his crew confidently full of steak, Dutch oven spuds, biscuits, and coffee, Bates tests the waters with his BLM guests, the current managers of the land. He asserts, smirking, that such a scenic sweep of, of its park caliper not to be trusted with the Bureau of Livestock and Mining or the Bureau of Lazy Men or anything that BLM represents. Abaya Cook takes a pull from the bottle and runs his hands across the sand, gravel, and stone beneath him. But this is such quality grazing land, he says. Laughter. It's a shame we park people hate cows so much, says Bates, lighting up a cigarette. That wasn't even beef I fed you. That was the last tourist to get lost up in arches. After a few more jokes, Abaya Cook, emboldened by Beam, asserts, Heck, Bates, if I could just give it to you to manage, I'd do it. Lord knows we ain't doing nothing with it. I hate waiting for politicians to argue it out when they don't even know nothing about this place. Bates, bottle in hand, says, Well, hell, let's just circumvent the whole political triangle and drop an agreement right now. What would it take for you to sign this area over? Abaya's eyes on the bottle across the fire. Three shots of whiskey, he says. Deal. Bates pulls out a little yellow notebook that any ranger worth of salt carries in his breast pocket. He hands it to Abaya, who somewhat unsteadily scrawls, I hereby assign all the interest of the BLM to the area bound by highways 24, 160, and 95 and to the Glen Canyon Recreational Area to the National Park Service on this date, Halloween 1961. The Big Cook. Cheers go up and around the campfire. Bates gently suggests that Abaya wait until the next night to cash in on his liquid payment. The men retire to the bedrolls, wishing that the land management discussions could be this personable rather than political, wishing that the original forces of one man's personality and passion for place could push through all those damn congressional oxbows, wishing that in the backcountry, campfire and camaraderie were all that really mattered. Well, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of the History Hour. And I just want to extend a really special thank you to Molly Marcello, um, who is over the public affairs division here of KZMU Radio. Also, I want to give a special thank you to Miss Christy Williams for some really awesome audio that she did provide for this episode. Um, and last but not least, I would love to just thank each and every one um, of Bates Wilson's friends and family that I personally interviewed for these two episodes. And I'd like to end this series here with a quote by Bates Wilson himself, and it's one of my personal favorite quotes from him. He said, If you live in this area long enough, the blow sand gets in your soul. That's why you stay here. No matter where you go, its charm will forever tug on you like a magnet. 
All right. Thank you guys for tuning in to the History Hour. And uh, if you guys are not on our Facebook page, uh, you can find us at Moab History Hour KZMU. And there I uh, post all the updates and even flyers. And uh, you guys can ask me any questions on the direct message there. And join us next month, the last Monday of every month at 4 p.m. right here on KZMU. You can catch the History Hour on the KZMU Airwaves on the last Monday of every month at 4 p.m.